Welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight we are going to be studying the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. So what we're going to do uh, this class is about the 13 days of October 1962. That's when the planet stared nuclear annihilation eyeball to eyeball. Okay, It's the closest it's ever been to a nuclear war. Okay, so uh, I'll just give you a little background on the situation. Okay, so as we know, the Cuban Revolution, it started in 56 December, okay, when Che, Fidel, uh, Raul, Camilo, they landed in, in Eastern Cuba. Only two years and one month, boom, they went, they walk into Havana, okay? Now, at first, it's not really a socialist revolution, so it's more like a bourgeois democratic revolution type. Okay, Fidel, he makes a trip to Washington, to U.S., and he meets the vice president, Richard Nixon. And that guy, he says, uh, well, we need to orient him in the right direction. In other words, he thinks they can control him. Okay? Now, uh, within a few months, Fidel starts the agrarian reforms okay, and uh, nationalizes a lot of U.S. assets on the land. Okay, so later on, there is Fidel who makes an agreement with the USSR to buy crude oil in exchange for fruits and, and sugar. And um, the U.S. refineries, ESO and Exxon, they refused to process the oil. So Fidel nationalized them. Now that got really pissed off uh, Eisenhower. So he decides to place an order to overthrow Fidel right off the bat. That's in March 1960. Okay, and later on, a year later, they—it's uh, Kennedy now in power. Okay, and uh, they do the Bay of Pigs invasion. It's a failure. That's in uh, 1961 April. Okay, then what they do is they say, okay, since we failed there, we're gonna do uh, an internal counter-revolution in Cuba the best we can. They call it Operation Mongoose. Okay, in the late 1961. Now, Khrushchev see all of that, of course, and he said, we need to help Cuba. So he um, decides to install secretly nuclear missiles in Cuba, okay, in July 62. And this is the beginning of the deal, okay? It comes to a crisis on October 16th, okay? So you're going to see the video, and uh, you're going you're gonna to see how it, how it, it, it turned out. The Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest the world has ever come to nuclear apocalypse. An ever-escalating arms race had led to the deployment of Soviet missiles in Cuba, which were now prepped and ready to fire on Washington, New York, and almost the entire eastern seaboard. An invasion force of over 120,000 soldiers gathered on the shores of Florida, and almost 3,000 American nuclear weapons were locked onto targets across the Soviet Union. The defining event of the Cold War, it would see the world's leading superpowers fight in a dangerous battle for nuclear superiority, just 90 miles from the American coast. For 13 days in October 1962, American President John F. Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev would engage in a battle of wills, where one wrong move could lead to global destruction. Time was ticking and neither side knew how events were about to unfold.
1962, Cold War tensions were at an all-time high, with disputes won by the side with the biggest nuclear arsenal. The United States had maintained a significant lead in the arms race since the conflict began, and had already installed Jupiter nuclear missiles in Italy and Turkey, all of which were aimed at the Soviet Union. With this advantage, the United States were quickly able to gain the upper hand in any Cold War confrontation, with the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev relying on threats and bluffs to maintain the illusion of control. Things would change in 1959, when communist revolutionary Fidel Castro managed to gain power in Cuba. The communist victory would come as a shock to US officials, as for the last 30 years, Cuba had been a popular holiday destination for wealthy Americans, and by the 1950s, most of the Cuban economy was under American control. However, this would all change when Castro came to power, with American-owned banks, casinos, as well as coffee and sugar plantations, all being nationalized, with Castro eventually turning to the Soviet Union for help and protection. When John F. Kennedy became president in 1961, he was under immense pressure to deal with the Cuban problem, and so launched the Bay of Pigs invasion in April 1961, just four months after taking office. 1,500 CIA-trained Cuban exiles invaded the island, with their task to depose Castro and eliminate communism in Cuba. But the invasion would turn out to be a disaster. The exiles found very little support amongst the Cuban people, and were quickly trapped by Castro's forces. Wanting to hide American involvement, Kennedy refused to sanction US air support, leading to the invaders surrendering after just three days. It was an embarrassing start to Kennedy's presidency. Castro's victory in Cuba was equally as important for Khrushchev. As well as gaining a new ally in the Western Hemisphere, Khrushchev would also develop a deep affection for Castro himself later stating that he thought of him like a son. Deciding that it was only a matter of time before Kennedy attempted another invasion of Cuba, Khrushchev decided to deploy nuclear missiles to the island in 1962, insisting on complete secrecy. If all went to plan, he would fly to Havana, the capital of Cuba, once the missiles were installed, to announce a formal defense agreement with Castro, forming a united front against the Americans. In order to maintain complete secrecy, the Soviet troops sent to the island were crammed beneath the deck of cargo and transport ships, where there was barely enough space to lie down. The soldiers themselves had no idea where they were heading, and were told to wear civilian clothes once they arrived to avoid detection. Accompanying the transport ships were four Soviet submarines, each of which carried a small nuclear-tipped torpedo. But conditions on the submarines were even worse than on the transport ships. As the submarines entered tropical waters, each 78-man crew would have to deal with temperatures as high as 140 degrees Fahrenheit, or 60 degrees Celsius. The crews suffered from extreme dehydration and nausea, made worse by the dangerously high levels of carbon dioxide and the constant smell of diesel. But for now, they had managed to avoid US intelligence, and Khrushchev's great missile gamble was looking successful. They would learn, Khrushchev stated, just what it feels like to have enemy missiles pointing at you. We'd be doing nothing more than giving them a little taste of their own medicine.
All right, thank you. And we will pause there for questions. Thank you, comrades. I read in John Lee's book, Che, the big yellow and red one, that it was actually Che Guevara in the nitty gritty details who asked the Soviet Union to bring the nuclear missiles to Cuba. Now, you can agree or not agree that Che should have done that. But I think I think my point is that it's initially Che that asked the Soviet Union because of Turkey to specifically bring in nuclear weapons to deter any more invasions uh, by the U.S. And I don't blame him. That That's it. Thank you. Like they said, the video, it's a little taste of their own medicine. You know, um, imagine how it feels to have nuclear missiles pointing at you all the time, constantly, 24 hours a day. You never know when they're going to go off. And the rhetoric that Americans talk about, um, the president's trying to act. Each one tried to be more and more anti-communist the farther along they went. So, you know, you can't really blame them. Fight fire with fire, you know. Yeah, uh, the, this documentary is going to get into it a little bit, and, and we'll definitely be able to say more on this as it goes on. But this is one of those situations that shows us just how terrible the prospect of nuclear war can be. Because basically everybody in the world was in a state of kind of fear and dismay when the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on. And at the end of the day, and, and we'll see this too, this is one of those instances where we see people not doing the right things. Some of the threats that Castro made about a first strike against the United States uh, wouldn't have helped anything. And, and I think one of the lessons that we can take away from this, and this applies in what's happening right now in Ukraine too, is we hope that nuclear bluffs stay nuclear bluffs because nobody wants nuclear war. And we should keep it to it having just been the United States that dropped the nukes in World War II. It shouldn't have happened, but let's keep it at just that. I just wanted to mention how Nikita Khrushchev provided an example of being someone who can be quite unstable politically and I would like to point out that the after the, the Cuban Missile Dilemma was one of the main reasons for Khrushchev being ousted in 1964. That's all. I do not believe that Khrushchev brought the missiles to Cuba because of Che. We have to remember that in August of 61 is when they built the, the Berlin Wall because of the West Berlin situation. And uh, Khrushchev thought two things, three things, really. Okay, number one, it will help to defend Cuba. That's one thing. Number two, it could be used as a bargaining chip about Western, uh, I mean, West Berlin, you know, to, to end West Berlin in exchange of removing the missiles. And number three, it was retaliation, sort of speak, for having missiles in Turkey which was a border with Armenia. So the missiles, the U.S. missiles were right there in Armenia. I mean, in Turkey and very close to the USSR. Okay, so um, there's no way that Khrushchev just did because Che Guevara asked. He had bigger things in mind, you know, it's understandable. Okay, thank you, comrade. Uh, and then before we get back to the next section, I just have uh, two comments myself. Uh, the first one being that I think that it is a very interesting example of framing to call it the Cuban Missile Crisis when America started it. 
like that is a very uh good example of propagandistic uh i'm not even sure that's a correct word but y'all know what i mean it's a very good example of propaganda in a headline i really it should be called the turkey missile crisis uh and so that is just the first thing that i wanted to point out and the second thing is that for all his faults khrushchev has to be commended for avoiding nuclear war because really the first responsibility of base on earth should be not just avoiding nuclear war but total international nuclear disarmament uh it's no use coming to power if you have power over a nuclear wasteland really like we don't want mass murder and extermination of life on earth and you see this a lot with nowadays with the ukraine situation where there will be liberal strong manning and bluffing about how oh it's worth it to risk nuclear war no it's not no no it's not it is not worth it to risk nuclear war under any circumstances that is extinction of the human race and so uh, that's all that i had to say there it would take over a month for american u2 spy planes to first spot the missiles on october 16th the cia would present kennedy with a series of photographs of the unfinished missile sites with important elements labeled for easy identification it was soon determined that they were dealing with medium range ballistic missiles capable of hitting targets at a distance of almost 1200 miles launched from cuba they would be capable of delivering a nuclear strike on florida new york and even the nation's capital washington dc in just 13 minutes causing millions of civilian casualties to help guide him through the crisis kennedy would set up excom a group of his most influential and trusted advisors as the group debated it soon became clear that kennedy had two options open to him He could either set up a naval blockade around Cuba to prevent further Soviet shipments from arriving, or he could use airstrikes to take out the missile sites before they could be completed. After days of debate, Kennedy would decide that the blockade was the better option. It was far less likely to provoke a conflict and would open the way for negotiation. On October 22nd, over 100 million Americans would tune into the television. and watch Kennedy announce the discovery of the missiles and his plans to implement a naval blockade of Cuba. Good evening my fellow citizens. This government as promised has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from cuba against any nation in the western hemisphere as an attack by the soviet union on the united states requiring a full retaliatory response upon the soviet union almost 5000 miles across the world khrushchev was deciding how to respond to kennedy's announcement He was glad that the president had shown restraint and had decided not to invade. The Soviet soldiers stationed in Cuba were equipped with short-range nuclear missiles to use in the event of a US invasion. If Kennedy had decided to invade, a full-scale nuclear war would have almost certainly followed. 
With Kennedy implementing a naval blockade of Cuba, Khrushchev now had to decide what to do with the Soviet ships still at sea. While almost all of the first shipments had arrived in Cuba, a more powerful group of intermediate-range missiles was still halfway across the Atlantic. He could either back down now and face an embarrassing retreat, or call the Americans bluff and continue to push ahead. As Khrushchev debated the issue, panic would begin to spread in the United States. The stock exchange was tanking, and many shops suddenly found themselves emptied out in a wave of panic buying. People could only sit at home and watch as news came in of Soviet ships creeping closer and closer to the blockade. Finally, on the morning of October 24th, two days after Kennedy's announcement, news would come in that the first Soviet ship had turned around and began sailing back home. Kennedy's gamble had paid off. There would be no more Soviet missiles arriving in Cuba. Upon hearing the news, Secretary of State Dean Rusk would famously state, We're eyeball to eyeball, and I think the other fellow just blinked. But the crisis would continue. As the missile sites neared completion, each side would begin to prepare for war. The Strategic Air Command would move to DEFCON 2 for the first time in history, just one step short of nuclear war. It commanded almost 3,000 nuclear weapons and had a B-52 Stratofortress taking off from US air bases every 20 minutes, each carrying enough destructive power to take out four Soviet cities. The US invasion plan of Cuba was also nearing completion, with top generals pressuring Kennedy to authorize the attack. Codenamed Operation Scabbards, the invasion called for a series of massive airstrikes followed by a paratrooper drop and an amphibious landing of 120,000 troops, almost the size of the D-Day landings at the end of World War II. As these troops began to arrive in Florida, the state came to resemble a war zone. Machine gun nests and barbed wire littered the beaches, and armed soldiers patrolled the streets. The Casa Marina Hotel was turned into an army headquarters, and the CIA set up safe houses in the surrounding area, where Cuban exiles were prepared to be used as an infiltration force. War was fast approaching, but on the evening of October 26th, the first signs of a diplomatic solution would appear. Kennedy would receive an unexpected letter from Khrushchev, outlining the potential terms of a deal. If the United States ended the blockade and promised not to invade Cuba, then Khrushchev would be willing to withdraw his troops. But the members of XCOM were skeptical. Many were keen to invade, while others were unwilling to accept any compromise that could be seen as a sign of weakness. Negotiation would have to wait. This is an excerpt from Khrushchev's letter to Kennedy uh, that we have, and I can read it. It says, I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and to make this pledge in the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. Let us reach agreement as to the period of time needed by you and by us to bring this about. And after that, 
persons entrusted by the United Nations Security Council could inspect on the spot the fulfillment of the pledges made. Of course, the permission of the governments of Cuba and Turkey is necessary for the entry into those countries of each of these representatives and for the inspection of the fulfillment of the pledge made by each side. Of course, it would be best if these representatives enjoyed the confidence of the Security Council, as well as yours and mine, both the United States and the Soviet Union, and also that of Turkey and Cuba. I do not think it would be difficult to select people who would enjoy the trust and respect of all parties concerned. We, in making this pledge, in order to give satisfaction and hope to the peoples of Cuba and Turkey, and to strengthen their confidence, uh, confidences in their own security, will make a statement within the framework of the Security Council to the effect that the Soviet government gives a solemn promise to respect the inviability of the borders and the sovereignty of Turkey, not to interfere in its internal affairs, not to invade Turkey, not to make available our territory as a bridgehead for such an invasion, and that it would also restrain those who contemplate committing aggression against Turkey either from the territory of the Soviet Union or from the territory of Turkey's other neighboring states. The United States government will make a similar statement within the framework of the Security Council regarding Cuba. It will declare that the United States will respect the inviability of Cuba's borders and its sovereignty and will pledge to not interfere in its internal affairs, not to invade Cuba itself or make its territory available as a bridgehead for such invasion. And it will also restrain those who might contemplate committing aggression against Cuba, either from the territory of the United States or from the territory of Cuba's other neighboring states. Of course, for this, we would have to come to an agreement with you and specify a certain time limit. Let us agree to some period of time, but without unnecessary delay, say within two or three weeks, not longer than a month. I wanna remind everybody, when this happened, let me bring you to when it happened. 1961. What was going on in the world communist movement in 1961? I re remind everybody. 1959, the beginning of the Sino-Soviet dispute and division of the communist movement into two groups. Those following Moscow and those following Peking which is the way we pronounced it at the time, not Beijing, Peking. The position of the followers of Peking was following. Khrushchev was a sellout. The Soviet Union was a sellout. By agreeing to this, there's nothing wrong with a nuclear war. I think you should all Google this. This was a statement by Mao Zedong. There's nothing wrong with a nuclear war because if we do have one, we have so many people, we will come out on top. Now that's important for us to look at. There were two ways to deal with this issue, the way the Soviets did and the way the Chinese did on the Mao Zedong. We should not whitewash what happened because I was involved in that division and so many other communists were. I was 13, 14. I think you should all know this. This is not a bourgeois capitalist quote. This was the position of Mao Zedong at the time. Thank you. So that was a very interesting um, letter you just read. And it seems like, and I've even remember reading this in like bourgeois history classes and JFK was very 
worried after this and he wanted to change the um, entire American international agenda. So what, how true was that? I mean, without getting too conspiratorial, you know, we know what happened to JFK in, in 1962. What was his relationships of working with uh, Khrushchev afterwards and after the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs operation? Yes. Okay. Actually, imperialism remained imperialism. You know, it was only three years later that the Vietnam War started with the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Okay. But they got so close to nuclear war that both sides understood that you cannot have nuclear war. And it was a positive outcome. The first one to shoot is the second one to die. Everybody dies. So uh, that's what it came up, came, you know, that's what the outcome was. And uh, they, uh, they got closer relationship as far as nuclear war. It didn't change anything about us being social uh, communist revolutionaries and them being imperialist, yes. But at least there would be no nuclear war. Uh, yeah. Uh, first, I want to offer a correction. Angelo said this was 1961. This was October of 1962. Just wanted to say that. This event is one of, it's not just one of the most important events in our history, seeing the USSR and the United States come so close to war. I mean, there was ships that were dropping death charges on Soviet submarines. People thought that they were at war in those submarines. They didn't, they didn't have, it's not like you have windows to see outside what's happening. They just felt booms and thought war was happening. But this is one of the most important events in history. I mean, we came to the brink of nuclear war. People didn't know if they would see the day after October 27th, 1962. So, you know, this is, this is a key flashpoint in the Cold War history and also in the history of nuclear close calls. I looked it up the other day and there's there was something like 10 or 11 nuclear close calls between the United States and the Soviet Union between the 50s and the 1990s. And some of them had been just as simple as computer miscalculations, something that's seeing a satellite being launched and think that it's a rocket. Sometimes it was things like April Archer 83 in the 80s, where we literally set up a surprise military drill in Europe that looked like World War Three and then just backed away from it last minute. And the Soviets had their nuclear planes on the runway. Um, They thought that that's what was about to happen. So this is very important, and I hope that people are inquisitive about this. I remember like uh, seeing the movies and reading about like the confrontation of the UN between the in the UN between the uh, US ambassador Adlai Stevenson's and the uh, Soviet ambassador Gromyko and like Gromyko denied there were missiles and and it seemed like Stevenson uh, made them look bad by showing the photos and making them look like a liar but wouldn't have been in, like since they were the Soviet Union was doing everything like defensively to protect Cuba, they shouldn't, wasn't that a, a tactical mistake? They had admitted it and said that they were doing it and explained themselves that they were doing it to protect Cuba and they weren't going to attack anyone and it didn't change the, the thing and the, the response to U.S. Uh, missiles in Turkey instead of just denying it. Okay. 
Khrushchev, he made the point to Kennedy that those weapons were defensive, even though they were nuclear, they were defensive, they were not offensive. And he made a comparison. He said, a cannon, a cannon can be a defense or can be an offense. It all depends what are your objectives. The USSR never had any intention of a first strike. Absolutely never. But it was in case of a first strike of the US that they wanted to be ready in Cuba because think of this, they only had 20 ICBMs, the long range missiles, and the US had 170. They were outnumbered, but their purpose was defensive, not offensive. So to further add to the whole defensive nature of these missiles, you know, in America, we call this the Cuban Missile Crisis. To Castro and the Cuban people, this is just known as the October incident because this was such a, you know, America was such a threat, you know, the everyday threat to them that the Cuban Missile Crisis, to one of the biggest incidents to us was just business as usual to them, right? And the United States has never invaded a country that has nuclear powers. We, that, that's one of the reasons why we see, you know, one of the first things that the Soviet Union wanted to do was develop nuclear missiles. And while we're seeing North Korea doing the same thing today, it's a form of defensive measure, right? They know they can't destroy completely America, but that's not the purpose of it. If they can just threaten to destroy even one city, I mean, we, you know, we've never even been invaded. We can't even, you know, 9-11 made us lose our collective minds. We can't even imagine having someone else bomb us, you know, with the missiles. So that's enough of a deterrence to scare us off from leading a full-scale invasion or trying to overthrow their country. Thank you. How concerned were average Americans of nuclear weapons before the missile crisis? I think of the airplane with the nuclear weapons that crashed in North Carolina about a year or so before. I was just curious. Thank you. In the 50s in the United States, and I guess to some extent the late 40s, um, first Americans started to like embrace a lot of nuclear things, whether it be bombs in terms of carrying out our foreign policy or just nuclear power in anything. I believe this is even the, the time where radiation is a big thing. You get microwaves and such. Um, so at first there was like this nuclear age, this embracing of it. But then this incident comes and you see nuclear weapons start to be aimed at the United States. Like all things, the United States goes ahead and carries out all this violence across the world. But when something starts to look like it might affect it, they panic. And so there was massive panicking. Uh, this is when some of the first atomic bunkers were built. This is one of those moments where Americans started to see the other side of nuclear weapons that you know they had been threatening and holding you know as a card over the world for the last two decades almost like basically yeah people started to panic after that and people started to think differently about nuclear weapons and so by the 80s you have things like the uh nuke freeze or whatever it was called it was a bunch of mass protests against nuclear weapons and to disarm um and unfortunately in the counter-revolution and everything that happened in the 80s and 90s, that whole nuclear disarmament just kind of fell through the cracks. And now we're at where we are today. Yes, very quickly, I have a good answer uh, about what the people were, were feeling about nuclear. That was the, uh, the period during the 50s, even into the 60s. It was the duck and cover period. 
that was uh, the famous video they showed to all the uh, people and even the, in all the schools. They were teaching duck and cover. Anybody wants to Google this after the meeting, you'll have a good chuckle yourself. And uh, the people were very, very afraid of nuclear weapons. Uh, they were building shelters all over the place and stacking food, and people were really terrified of, uh, of nuclear weapons. And as far as in North Carolina, it wasn't a plane crash. What happened was they accidentally released a nuclear weapon by accident. It got loose and fell out of the plane. And think about uh, nuclear bombs. There are The bomb itself can explode, doesn't mean that it's called triggers. And they have, and seven triggers had to go off in order for the nuclear explosion to happen. Uh, I believe five, maybe six triggers went off. The seventh didn't. And that's the only reason that the, that, that the North Carolina wasn't devastated with a nuclear weapon. Of course, they immediately uh, got that bomb and got the hell out of there. But, but that's called, and many of those incidents, they're all referred to as broken arrows. And people should Google that after the meeting for further education. Broken arrows. And that's the, uh, the nuclear accidents with, with nuclear weapons and nuclear facilities, particularly nuclear weapons. That's the term that the peace movement gave to uh, uh, those incidents. And they've been they're documented. And you can, doc- you can check it out to how many broken arrows there have been. It's fascinating. We used to have desks in the classroom that was screwed into the floor. Not the way they have it now. And it was made out of wood, and they were in a row. We all had to go under our desks because that was supposed to protect us from the nuclear explosion that broke all the windows in the classroom. And we were supposed to get protected from radiation. How ridiculous. We knew nothing. That was not what was going to happen. We were all going to die from a nuclear winter. We didn't know anything about that. Everybody in every block was talking about ripping up their front lawns and putting in the ground a shelter to have enough food in there to last for months and months. This is where we were at. We were at the end of our rope mentally. If you think people have a mental problem now with the COVID virus, that is nothing compared to what we went through then. We all thought it was the end of everything. And in spite of that, in spite of that, communists, were able to break through in that. What Khrushchev did then was diplomatic. The same Khrushchev who's attacked day in and day out by Western ultra-leftists, Western ultra-leftists were attacking him as a sellout. And I find that extremely interesting. The ultra-left, when push comes to shove, I've said this many times, you're going to find them on the same side as the right wing. The right wing was saying, drop the bomb, drop the bomb. And the ultra left was saying the same thing. Thank you. You have the floor to resume the viewing. The crisis would come to a head on October 27, 1962 a day that would come to be known as Black Saturday. On this day, a series of incredibly dangerous events would take place, any one of which could have led to a nuclear war. 
The day would begin with Castro composing a letter to Khrushchev, urging him to consider a nuclear first strike against the United States. He had become utterly convinced that an American invasion was imminent, and wanted his Soviet allies to deliver the first blow. Unlike Castro, Khrushchev still believed there was time for negotiation. He would send a second proposal to Kennedy, this time specifying what he would accept in a deal. Khrushchev agreed to remove his missiles from Cuba, if Kennedy would do the same with the American Jupiter missiles in Turkey. Wanting to bypass the slow diplomatic process, Khrushchev would instead broadcast his message over Radio Moscow for the world to hear. When Kennedy heard the proposal, he knew it was a fair deal. The Jupiter missiles were secretly considered obsolete, with Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara describing them as a pile of junk. Yet there was significant resistance within XCOM. The Turkish government was opposed to the deal, and it was argued that trading away the missiles would significantly weaken the power of NATO and lead to further demands from Khrushchev. If Kennedy wanted to accept the deal, he would have to stand alone against his advisers. American spy plane pilot Rudolf Anderson would then enter Cuban airspace. As he began photographing the missile sites, he would draw the attention of Soviet air defenses, who would label him target number 33. The Soviet forces had been in a state of high alert for a number of days, being convinced by Castro that an American invasion was imminent. Anderson's plane was particularly troubling, as it had flown over the missile site targeting Guantanamo Bay. If allowed to leave, the Americans would have in-depth knowledge of Soviet positions, paving the way for targeted airstrikes. Deciding it was too dangerous to let the spy plane escape, the order was dispatched to destroy target number 33. Two missiles were fired, with Anderson being killed upon impact. The crisis had claimed its first casualty. Back in Washington, time was running out. The military were calling for massive airstrikes against Cuba by Monday morning at the latest and news was starting to come in that Anderson's plane had been shot down. At this crucial moment, Kennedy would turn to the one person he could truly trust, his brother, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. With the help of presidential speechwriter Ted Sorensen, Bobby would draft a reply to Khrushchev that attempted to merge all the different ideas XCOM had. In exchange for the removal of the missiles, the United States would be willing to make a pledge not to invade Cuba. The removal of the Jupiter missiles in Turkey was also part of the deal, but this would have to remain a secret to avoid offending America's NATO allies. Khrushchev would just have to trust that the president would stick to his word. This was Kennedy's last hope. If the deal was rejected, he would have no choice but to go to war. As Bobby was delivering the message to the Soviet ambassador, an incredibly dangerous confrontation would occur in the Atlantic. The US Navy had been making an intense effort to find the four Soviet submarines since the crisis began, 
and had finally closed in on them. They planned to use signaling depth charges to drive the submarines to the surface, whose harmless explosions would act as a warning. The Soviet submarine B-59 had been chased by US forces for the last two days, with the already unbearable conditions on board having gotten worse. The ventilation system had shut down, with temperatures rising to unbearable heights and high levels of carbon dioxide causing many officers to faint while on duty. The disoriented crew would be shaken by wave after wave of deafening explosions as US ships began dropping signaling depth charges directly on top of them. The submarine's crew had been unable to contact Moscow for over 24 hours, and as far as they were aware, World War III could have broken out while they were under the waves. Tired and exhausted, the submarine's captain would order nuclear torpedoes to be launched, believing that war had already begun. But the decision required the approval of all onboard officers. One of the officers, Vasily Arkhipov, refused to go through with the launch, single-handedly preventing the outbreak of nuclear war. As night came on October 27th, no one knew what the next day would hold. The crisis had claimed its first casualty. A nuclear launch had been narrowly avoided in the Atlantic, and both Fidel Castro and the US military were pressing for war. The power to end the crisis now lay with Khrushchev. He could either swallow his pride and accept Kennedy's terms, or push for further concessions and risk provoking war. But Khrushchev had decided long ago that he would have to retreat. As Kennedy's message came in, promising to remove the Jupiter missiles, Khrushchev finally had terms he could work with, and that morning he would broadcast his acceptance of the deal on Radio Moscow. Uh, before we get to the hands, I just want to quickly address something in that last section that we were viewing. Uh, the Cuban people were not convinced by Castro that an American invasion was imminent. They were in, convinced by reality. One was imminent. They were planning one. They were planning targeted airstrikes. So the way that the uh, documentary uh, framed that, I found to be slightly misleading. It wasn't just like Castro's propaganda that had convinced them. It's on the topic of the Sino-Soviet split that uh, General Secretary brought up earlier. He said, I was going to quote, the United States cannot annihilate the Chinese nation with its small stack of, of atom bombs, even if the U.S. atom bombs were so powerful that when dropped on China, they would make a hole right through the earth or even blow it up. That would hardly mean anything to the universe as a whole, though it might be a major event for the solar system. Mao, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, like, it's just such a double standard that the United States has when it comes to like anything regarding nuclear weapons. Like, it's like we can do anything with them, like whether it's using them on civilians or pointing them out countries and like it's all justified. It's all fine. But like the minute it happens, like you hear like the, like the media freaking out that like, you know, the DPRK or like Iran starts building a nuclear weapon. But it's like, you know, we went sitting on a stockpile of them for how long? So just something to think about. Thank you. In current events, back a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, uh, Zelensky was actually calling for 
preventative strikes to prevent nuclear attacks from Russia. He was calling on uh, on NATO forces to carry out these preventative strikes. And it's like, you know, I mean, his country would be one of the first to be destroyed by nuclear bombs. I, I, you know, I I don't understand how... uh, how casual they are with these, you know, with this kind of talk. Yeah, I had a few points, um, mostly just kind of reality checks. Ukraine might be 10,000 miles further away than Cuba is, but I never thought I would live in a lifetime where I would have my own October crisis or Cuban missile crisis. But it's it's real. And, you know, the the Western powers, right? They don't play fair. But with that, I wanted to ask mostly Comrade Angelo, because I know you have a lot more wisdom than us. Do you think current U.S. has the stability to also be diplomatic or do you think we're kind of screwed? Do you think like the way they handled it in the 60s is any different? What, what, what's your opinion on that, sir? Thank you. Well, put it this way. The world today, for us communists, those of us who are communists here, not everybody is. But for us, we had a different world. We had all the communists were on the same side. They were just beginning. They were just beginning to divide between China and the Soviet Union. Remember, that came out of the, the, the 56 thing. And by the way, China followed, this has nothing to do with tonight's class, but China followed the Soviet lead in the communist movement until 1959. So for three years or more, they were pro-Soviet. But it wasn't until 59 that we had a division and division was just beginning, all right? Today, it's a whole different thing. Everybody's grandmother and uncle is a different type of communist. Reminds me of the cop beating the striker and the striker says, I'm anti-communist. And the cop says, I don't care what kind of communist you are. You're still a communist. And he hits him over the head with the baton. And that's exactly what we have today. We have so-called anarcho-communists. They made that term up with the Internet. Um, We have um, uh, all types of communists. So we don't have the same world anymore. Do I think the United States has the same caliber just as we are, are divided, U.S. imperialism is divided. And you have the Trump people, you have the Biden people, and you have other independent people. Uh, and they're still capitalists. They still have the same position. Do I think the world will ever come to that? I put it this way. I hope not. I hope we learn something. I hope we learn something. That's how close we, we came. That's my base answer to you. Thank you. Uh, yes, I wanted to impart a little bit of uh, humor regarding the missiles in Turkey, the Jupiter missiles. Uh, and even mentioned that McNamara said that they were they were useless, showing how the you know the government works, uh, even in the military. Uh, they were more than useless; uh, they were dangerous. When Kennedy first took office, reviewing everything going on, reviewing everything throughout the federal government, and reviewing military prowess. He was told that the missiles in Turkey were more dangerous to the troops, our troops, than they were to the Soviet Union. And he gave an order. Well, get rid of them. 
And when this thing happened in the, when Kucha sent his letter and this, uh, uh, you know, evolved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they said, well, we'll take our missile. You, you, how about you taking your missiles out of Turkey? You know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the President Kennedy said to his staff, wasn't these missiles supposed to be removed from Turkey? And they said, well, I guess so, but then still there. And it just shows you how, you know, things happen in the government that these missiles that were dangerous to our troops were supposed to be removed, you know, were not removed. And they were still there. And so just a little humor I wanted to report. Uh, yeah, just on current events and where we're at, um, one of the other things that just happened this month is President Duda of Poland had suggested hosting U.S. nuclear weapons, and then it seems that he's agreed to host U.S. NATO nuclear weapons in Poland. And this, you know, it's not right up on the border of Russia like Turkey was, but it's right there. And I think the only difference this time is that there really isn't anything close to the United States. There's things that are close to European countries where there's new. But you don't have Cuba hosting nuclear weapons right now or Mexico or Nicaragua, Venezuela, what have you. So you just have like a super aggressive United States and NATO that's willing to risk nuclear war. And it's it's funny right now how you see a lot of different mainstream media outlets acting like Putin is like Putin's nuclear bluffs are the only nuclear bluffs that are coming right now. No, it's been coming from both sides. And it's getting just as dangerous as it was in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, the doomsday clock by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that's been going on since Albert Einstein brought the information here about nuclear weapons research. Uh, the doomsday clock is at 100 seconds to midnight, which is the closest it's been, um, I believe. If, it, if there was ever a time where it came closer, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so... Let's hope that the nuclear bluffs are nuclear bluffs, and let's hope that diplomacy uh, wins out here in some way, shape, or form. Uh, because, you know, it, if you think COVID was something, nuclear holocaust is a whole nother thing, and it's definitely not what we need. I'm puzzled about why the U.S. like dropped death charges on like uh, Soviet submarines during the crisis. What were they hoping to accomplish? So I can give an answer to that. Basically, they were wanting them to surface and surrender. Um, oh. It was, a, I believe, the military advisors, people like LeMay. Um, and Curtis LeMay, by the way, is the one who was behind the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the uh, incendiary bombings of Japan as well that we went over uh, a month or two ago. And Curtis LeMay and these different war hawks that were in the uh, Kennedy administration and in the different spheres of the military industrial complex, this was their way of engaging in warfare with the Soviets. And it's also not the only time it's happened. We actually did engage uh, Soviet ships, or not ships, uh, fighter jets during the Korean War. And I believe that there was small skirmishes since then too. Um, but it just shows you how far it got. Okay, comrade. You probably heard uh, the saying that goes like this, history does not repeat itself, but at times it rhymes. Okay, so I read this interesting article on RT just a few days ago about the 60th anniversary of the Cuban crisis, missile crisis. And uh, as you know, 
um, Fidel and Che advocated at one time for a first strike. Okay, if that had been done, would have been the end. We all know. Okay, and you know it's funny because they um, so Fidel and Che was the hot-headed of our side, you know, and uh, they talk about Zelensky uh, that advocates for a first strike on Russia with nuclear weapon. So like Zelensky is a hot-headed of the NATO imperialists, you know. So they kind of compare both, not to say anything bad about Fidel, but at the time Fidel was in the wrong and Khrushchev was in the right, just, just so we know, okay. And there's one more thing interesting. At one time, Kennedy, he goes to uh, either Khrushchev or uh, Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador, he goes, how would you feel? If we, United States, had missiles in Finland. 90 seconds. Think of this for now, you know. <laughs> the U.S. Uh, and NATO, they have missiles in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, you know. So how does Russia feel about it? Same thing. But Khrushchev had decided long ago that he would have to retreat. As Kennedy's message came in, promising to remove the Jupiter missiles, Khrushchev finally had terms he could work with, and that morning he would broadcast his acceptance of the deal on Radio Moscow, bringing an end to the crisis. The Soviet forces in Cuba were ordered to dismantle the missiles and return them home, with the last leaving the island two weeks later. The blockade was formally ended on November 20th, with the Jupiter missiles, as promised, being discreetly dismantled five months later. While Kennedy and Khrushchev were both relieved, others were less happy. Castro was furious that a deal had taken place behind his back and would begin to doubt the resolve of his Soviet allies. The US military, who had been pushing for an invasion since the crisis began, were also critical of the deal, with General Curtis LeMay describing the deal as the greatest defeat in American history. The Cuban Missile Crisis would have a significant effect on the Cold War. Having come so close to nuclear apocalypse, both superpowers would take steps to ensure that a similar crisis could never happen. Communication had been particularly poor during the crisis, with Khrushchev's first letter taking almost 12 hours to reach the president. A hotline would soon be installed between the White House and the Kremlin to ensure good communication if another crisis occurred. Never again would the most powerful leaders in the world have to communicate through the sole use of handwritten letters and radio broadcasts.
All right. Thank you, comrade. And we will pause there. Okay. So uh, I wanted to, it's not going to take long. It's just uh, a, an excerpt, excerpt of Khrushchev's letter that I found uh, very human uh, that he wrote to Kennedy. And he goes this. If you did this as a first step towards the unleashing of war, well, then it is evident that nothing else is left to us but to accept this challenge of yours. If, however, you have not lost your self-control and sensibly conceive what this might lead to, then, Mr. President, we and you out not, out not now to pull on the ends of the rope in which you have tied the knot of war. Because the more the two of us pull, the tighter that knot will be tied. And a moment may come when that knot will be tied, will be tied so tight that even he who tied it will not have the strength to untie it. And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you, because you yourself understand perfectly of what terrible forces our countries dispose. Consequently, if there is no intention to tighten that knot and thereby to doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this. I, I think uh, Khrushchev right there uh, saved uh, our human race that day. Yeah, and just a correction, I think I was alluding to Kennedy being assassinated in 1962. Uh, it was three, as it was said in the documentary. Um, but um, also the documentary mentioned how furious Castro was. Um, I remember reading the, um, an, it was kind of like an autobiography by uh, Castro, and uh, he actually commemorated um, Kennedy a lot in that. Um, he, you know, he was said a lot of things that were, it was unfortunate how things played out, but it just seems strange that he'd be so angry. What was he expecting the Soviet Union to do besides what else could they have done, really? It just, can anyone speak about why, if Castro was even that, like, furious? So I read, there's also on the NSA archives website, there is a list of different documents relating to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I can go ahead and uh, link it in there while I explain this. But, um, Basically, Fidel got Fidel's communications with Khrushchev during October 26, 27, 28th were kind of one of those of emergency where Fidel was rightfully stressed out, was anxious. With, I mean, you've got this country 90 miles away from you that wants to invade you to go ahead and end this. So, of course, this is why he's so hard headed and makes these threats with the nukes. But Khrushchev is, of course, trying to calm things down and is trying to work in a diplomatic way. And so they they kind of have a, a squabble with each other in terms of their uh, uh, approach to the situation and different letters back and forth. And afterwards, Fidel basically tries to clarify what was going on and get Khrushchev to see uh, from his position. But it never went into a thing where they broke any kind of ties or anything. It was just in that moment, you can kind of understand where both of them are coming from, but ultimately it was Khrushchev's diplomacy that won out. And uh, Fidel, while frustrated, you know, had to deal with that. 
Do you think Khrushchev handled the situation like responsibly? And if not, like, what are your critiques of what, how we could have gone about things a little bit better? I think he did kind of a gamble, you know, about putting the missile there. His intention was not reckless, but reckless were uh, Che and, and Fidel, to be honest, even though I love them. And the times they were in the wrong. And, um, you know, at the end, think of this. Khrushchev removed the missiles, okay, under the condition that the U.S. publicly declare it will never invade Cuba. Did the U.S. invade Cuba? They didn't. Of course, they tried to do internal color revolution. They still try today, last week, okay, but they did not invade. Otherwise, if uh, we listen to Fidel and Che, first strike, our parents, grandparents would have died. All of us here would not exist. Thank you, comrade. I would like to actually add to that briefly. Putting the nukes in Cuba, as Comrade Christian had said, for one, it got the U.S. to promise not to invade Cuba and to respect its national sovereignty. For another, it got the missiles out of Turkey. Uh, so it actually ended up de-escalating the international situa- nuclear situation by the end of it as a whole. And so um, realistically, the U.S. policy post-World War II was, atten- was essentially to establish complete international domination. And setting up strategically placed nuclear missile silos was a big part of that strategy. And so... Personally, I would say that any tactical maneuver that results in a loss of an international U.S. nuclear silo, the only country to have ever used nuclear bombs on a living person and a populated settlement, is an objective win in the long run. That, that would be my perspective on that. That said, what news sources would you suggest and why do we call each other comrades here? Uh, so in terms of news sources that I would suggest, our LYC publication, Red Patriot, that is the first place that I would suggest uh, we post some articles on there. Um, also, our newspaper, The Communist, uh, The Worker, is another good newspaper that we put out that's a good source of news. I believe that we have social media pages for all three of those as well. Uh, So all three of those are good news sources that I would definitely recommend following. Why do we call each other comrades here? Comrade Stalin said that the Communist Party is the general staff of the working class. General staff here is a military term. Uh, We are comrades in arms. We are comrades in class war against the bourgeoisie. It is a term of solidarity. It's a term of camaraderie, and it is a term that is used to show that we are loyal to each other and to the cause. That is the best answer that I can give to that. Yeah, so what I wanted to say was they talked at the end there about improving communication. And at the time and during Cold War, obviously, that helped to some extent whenever there was a big uh, international situation on a nuclear close call, you know. President Nixon or Reagan or Bush could phone into any of the Soviet premiers and go, what's going on and try to figure it out. But now we obviously see what a situation like Ukraine, where there's instantaneous communication. I mean, Biden can tweet at Putin and Putin can read it on the shitter. Um, it's, it's that quick. Um, it, it's not working. And there's more nuclear bluffs that are happening now. And it makes me come to a realization 
that as long as imperialism continues, we're going to see some sort of, I don't want to sound alarmist or out there, but apocalyptic scenario where you either have a fascist takeover, you have climate disaster getting so bad that things go extinct, or you have nuclear holocaust, because this is where it keeps going when you have these imperialist entanglements and these different drives to expand and conquer. And so that's why our, our work is so important. It, it really is. Because if we can manage to, in the belly of the beast, actually organize and get ourselves together to go forth and win a revolution, um, that that'll change the entire trajectory of history. I just wanted to say that because I've been making that realization as I watch what's going on in the world. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know too much about what Turkey was like back in these times. I know after the Ottoman Empire, it was, you know, a lot of the areas were kind of uh, taken over by the the British, the Americans, German or not Germans. Um, well, the allied powers of the um, World War One, but. Um, so, I, I, I mean, that sort of makes sense. That, and they were also NATO members. But why were they so eager to hold nuclear um, bombs in their uh, country, especially since they were surrounded by, you know, uh, Azerbaijan, um, Armenia, Georgia? You know, I mean, uh, like they're so eager to put a, a target on their back for nuclear retaliation, it's, um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious why they volunteer for that. Okay, so I don't have like a great answer as to why Turkey would want the nuclear weapons. Uh, there's a couple things to remember. Uh, one, post-World War II Turkey especially is not a very stable democracy, even by Western standards. Uh, they have frequent coups. Uh, all the time, the military flexes its muscle a lot. So sometimes they're a democracy in the Western sense, and sometimes they're military dictatorship. The other thing about NATO is, you know, the U.S. kind of ends up bossing the other NATO people around, and a lot of these other countries don't exactly get a, a fair shake, especially if the U.S. is also going to dangle some dollars in front of you and say, hey, we'll give you a lot of sweet money if we get to store our nuclear weapons near you. So I don't know if there was a lot of choice by the Turkish government, but I also know that they're kind of not the best at times. So, you know, there might be something to that. It would definitely be something uh, worth studying, though. I want to add also that if you look at Turkey, they hold the entrance to the Black Sea, you know, which is the only warm sea for the Soviet Union at the time, right? So um, maybe they thought that the USSR wanted to take control of the Straits, you know, the Bosphorus, um, which at one time the Tsar did, you know, but it's not like Stalin or Khrushchev did, but maybe they thought they wanted. Thank you, comrade. And uh, to add on a little bit, yeah, basically, um, the U.S. has historically used a combination of military intimidation and economic incentivization 
uh, essentially through a combination of in uh, most of the world, they use combination of Europe and the World Bank and IMF. And but I believe that both of those did exist at this time. Uh, the World Bank was founded in 1944. I don't remember when the IMF was founded, though. But I do think that it existed at the time. And, and so the U.S. has used those as essentially a tool uh, historically to strong arm other countries into doing whatever the hell we want them to do. Well, I have that letter, and then another one that I can read that I have is the letter back from. President Kennedy to Khrushchev, if we want to see that side of the exchange. The IMF was formed in 1945. So yeah, both of those existed at the time. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, so this is uh, the Khrushchev. So we were at the means situated in Cuba, of which you speak and which disturb you, as you have stated, are in the hands of Soviet officers. Therefore, any accidental use of them to the detriment of the United States is excluded. These means are situated in Cuba at the request of the Cuban government and are only for defensive purposes. Therefore, if there is no invasion of Cuba or attack on the Soviet Union or any of our other allies, then of course these means are not and will not be a threat to anyone, for they are not, pur they are not for purposes of attack. If you are agreeable to my proposal, Mr. President, then we would send our representatives to New York, to the United Nations, and would give them comprehensive instructions in order that an agreement may be reached more quickly. You also select your people and give them the corresponding instructions, then this question can be quickly resolved. Why would I like to do this? Because the whole world is now apprehensive and expects sensible actions of us. The greatest joy for all the peoples would be the announcement of our agreement and of the eradication of the controversy that has arisen. I attach great importance to this agreement insofar as it could serve the, as the beginning and could in particular make it easier to reach agreement on banning nuclear weapons tests. The question of the tests could be solved in parallel fashion without connecting one with the other because these are different issues. However, it is important that the agreement be reached on both of these issues so as to present humanity with a fine gift and also to gladden it with the news that an agreement has been reached on the cessation of nuclear tests and consequently that the atmosphere will no longer be poisoned. Our position, on your, uh, our position and yours on this issue are very close together. All of this could possibly serve as a good impetus towards finding of mutually acceptable agreements on the on other controversial issues on which you and I have been exchanging views. These issues have so far not been resolved, but they are awaiting urgent solution, which would clear up the international atmosphere. We are prepared for this. These are my proposals, Mr. President, respectively yours, Nikita Khrushchev. All right, thank you, comrade. And uh, yeah, let's read the letter from Kennedy. This is actually from uh, the JFK Library website. They have a whole thing on 13 days in October, and I can end up linking it here, too, where there's a whole bunch of these different texts. But this is a State Department telegram conveying President Kennedy's reply to the Radio Moscow announcement. Dear Mr. Chairman, I am replying at once to your broadcast message of the October 28, 
even though the official text has not yet reached me because of the great importance I attach to moving forward promptly to the settlement of the Cuban crisis. I think that you and I, with our heavy responsibilities for the maintenance of peace, were aware that developments were approaching a point where events could have become unmanageable. So I welcome this message and consider it an important contribution to peace. The distinguished efforts of Acting Secretary General Yu Thant have greatly facilitated both our tasks. I consider my letter to you of October 27th and your reply today as a firm undertakings on the part of both of our governments, which should be promptly carried out. I hope that the necessary measures can at once be taken through the United Nations, as your message says, so that the United States in turn can remove the quarantine measures now in effect. I have already made arrangements to report all of these matters to the Organization of American States, those whose members share a deep interest and a genuine peace in the Caribbean area. You referred in your letter to a violation of your frontier by an American aircraft in the area of the Chukotsk Peninsula. I have learned that this plane, without arms or photographic equipment, was engaged in an air sampling mission in connection with your nuclear tests. Its course was to was direct from Yeltsin Air Force Base in Alaska to the North Pole and return. And turning south, the pilot made a serious navigational error, which carried him over Soviet territory. He immediately made an emergency call on open radio for navigational assistance and was guided back to his home base by the most direct route. I regret this incident and will see to it that every precaution is taken to prevent recurrence. And then there's another, Mr. Chairman, both of our countries have great unfinished tasks and I know that your people as well as those of the United States can ask for nothing better than to pursue them free from the fear of war. Modern science and technology have given us the possibility of making labor fruitful beyond anything that could have been dreamed of a few decades ago. I agree with you that we must devote urgent attention to the problem of disarmament as it relates to the whole world and also to critical areas. Perhaps now, as we step back from danger, we can together make real progress in this vital field. I think we should give priority to questions relating to the proliferation of nuclear weapons on Earth and in outer space, and to the great effort for a nuclear test ban. But we should also work hard to see if wider measures of disarmament can be agreed and put into operation at an early date. The United States government will be prepared to discuss these questions urgently and in a constructive spirit at Geneva or elsewhere. Signed, John F. Kennedy. All right, thank you, comrade. And now we will take our final, final list of hands. Yeah, so um, if I remember correctly, um, JFK, um, they didn't, uh, they didn't, when they uh, took the missiles out of Turkey and Cuba, they, to the general public, they didn't um, say that JFK um, got the missiles out of Turkey. So he would appear stronger than, you know, like uh, for like propaganda purposes. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I, I, I've heard that before. Thank you, yeah, Conrad. And that was also mentioned in the uh, documentary we just watched, I believe. Oh, okay. Correct. Yeah. All right. I'm uh, eating for part of that. So <laughs> I get it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say on that that before 
President Kennedy died, I just wanted to touch on kind of the aftermath of the situation. Uh, he was still an imperialist, still a capitalist, still a president, but he was starting to reconsider the foreign policy that he had presided over. He wanted to get through re-election before announcing certain things, but he wanted to take troops back home from Vietnam. He wanted to make peace with Cuba. He wanted to try to make more peace with the Soviet Union. He wanted to reverse in a way. He started to see that, oh shit, we brought this all the way to the brink. Maybe we should try to reverse course. But the empire is still the empire. And I, I feel like it's reasonable for us to assume they took him down. Uh, and then, of course, they took Bobby Kennedy down later in the decade, um, and they tried 600 times unsuccessfully to kill Fidel Castro because of it. So, um, but one of the uh, question or one of the quotes that Kennedy said that I actually do like and that sticks into my head is that we all live on this small green or small blue planet. We all breathe God's clean air. We all care about our children's futures. We all cherish the moments that we have. We basically, we should cherish all of that and not let any kind of Holocaust like that ever happen. And, and I know I've kept saying that in this class, but, and we don't, we're not the ones that are gonna use nukes. It would be our government. Our work is so important because of that, because of the fact that we're trying to fight against this state that holds nukes over our head like a sword of Demetrius. Um, so that's just what I wanted to add. Earlier, Cameron mentioned Curtis LeMay. He was a, a head of the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, and he was a hothead. He wanted to invade Cuba, basically starting World War III, okay? And so he was a hothead, kind of like the opposite of Fidel being the hothead on our side, okay? Now, think of this. A year later, Kennedy gets assassinated, okay? There was uh, those hotheads on the imperialist side blamed him for two things. One, the failed uh, Bay of Pigs, and second, uh, not to invade Cuba and to let Cuba live, because Cuba did live, was not invaded no more. Uh, they blamed him, okay? So uh, not to be a conspiracy or anything, but they had a lot to do with Kennedy's assassination. Think of that. The people like Curtis LeMay and all these mother freakers, you know, allied with the mafia, okay? So, and another thing, I would encourage comrades to watch a movie, Dr. Strangelove from Stanley Kubrick, because it's related directly uh, on the Cuban thing, missile thing. And uh, there is this guy in there that is like, act, uh, that is basically Curtis LeMay. And he's the one starting the nuclear war with Russia, with USSR, I mean. And it's, it's a character in a movie. You're gonna love that movie, watch it. Dr. Strangelove, from Stanley Kubrick from 1964. Thank you, comrades. All right, thank you, comrade. And with that, I uh, wanna just thank everybody for coming out tonight. Uh, this has been a fantastic class as always. I always love hearing from everybody. Um, the main thing that I want everybody to take away from this class is we are in the same situation. Uh, more or less. There are obviously situational differences, but we are nearing the brink of nuclear war. Uh, the U.S. is saber-rattling. Uh, the U.S. is saber-rattling with Russia, with China, 
th- those are the two big ones, but we've also been launching invasions globally. Uh, the U.S. empire is crumbling. It's been decaying for decades now. And at this point, it seems like the capitalists are starting to feel backed into a corner and they're showing their fangs. And this is something that we all should take with the utmost seriousness. Um, There are a lot of existential crises facing us right now as a species. Our job could determine the survival of the human race. That is why it is so important what we do. Uh, It's why we cannot abide people treating this like a debating society or a book club. It's why we cannot abide people not treating this with the utmost seriousness and dedication. Like, Like, I mean, this stuff is so important that it's success or failure could determine whether or not we as a species survive, not just the next thousand years, not just the next hundred years. It could, it could define whether or not we survive the next 30 years. Uh, And so I feel like this is something that we all really need to keep in mind and remember is that our work here is of the utmost importance because we live in the country that has, is the only country on earth to have bombed civilian populations or any populated area with nukes. Uh, we have been engaged in warfare for the vast majority of our country's existence, and um, it is a danger to everybody, and we need to win. That's what it comes down to. That is the end of uh, my spiel. Comrade Angelo, I'll hand you the floor. Uh, I have nothing to say. We had a good class. Thank you very much. Thank you, comrade. Have a great night, everybody.